Would you turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 5? Continue on in our, <coughs> pardon me, in our studies in 1 Corinthians. And I want to read the entire chapter to you before I begin to make some, some comments on this text. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does, does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have, not in mor- and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to keep on eating with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And we talk a lot about the goodness and the grace of God and his relentless love for us. This is the other side of Jesus. This is, a, this is another look at, at God, one which we sometimes shrink from, but yet it has to do with his holiness, the holiness of his, of his character. As we have mentioned a number of times, the people in Corinth had a very easy, lax, casual attitude toward sex. It was a sex-saturated society. And that attitude had filtered into the church and uh, the attitude of the church was one of, of tolerance for all sorts of uh, sexual sins. And here was a man who was involved in an affair with his mother, probably his stepmother. We don't know all the details. We have to fill in a lot of the blanks. But I'm guessing that he was somehow involved in a sexually immoral relationship with uh, his father's wife, the way Paul puts it would suggest that it was not his biological mother. It was his father's wife that would make him, her, uh, his uh, stepmother. Uh, and as Paul points out, this is the kind of sin that even the Gentiles abhor. Now, remember, Gentiles is Paul's word for those that do not follow Christ. He's talking about non-Christians, even unbelievers 
don't countenance this sort of behavior. They did have laws against uh, incest in the Roman Empire. But even more than that, there's a certain emotional taboo, I think, that people feel toward this uh, particular sin. There is, as a matter of fact, an ex a very demeaning expression that the world uses to refer to those that are involved in, in sexual relationships with their mothers. The term has lost a lot of its content and meaning, but still it gives us some attitude of the way the world looks at this behavior. And uh, for whatever reason, the church was, was very tolerant of this man. They were saying, well, he'll work it out on his own. You know, boys will be boys. And, you know, we, we want to show grace and mercy. We, we don't want to interfere. This man, uh, we don't know anything about his background, but let me try to sketch in what might have happened. And this, this is a shot in the dark, you understand. This is not in the text. But uh, it may be that his father was very abusive. Perhaps he was alcoholic, and he was raised in that environment. And his mother very soon got enough of it, and she left. And so he was uh, in this very hard, uh, difficult situation. He had been wounded terribly. All of us uh, hunger so much for relationship. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We... We, we want to be uh, cared for. We want people to see all of our flaws and, and areas of need and, and still love us. And so this uh, young man desperately wanted love. And, and perhaps his father married again, married a younger woman, brought her into the house, and uh, they became involved sexually. And, and he felt that this was meeting some deep need that, that he had. And the church was trying to be uh, tolerant and understanding. Of this, uh, of this situation. When it comes down to it, we're all wounded. We've all been dealt terrible blows by life, and the tendency on the part of all of us is to look for some, some relationship. As uh, Harry Schomburg, our IMM pastor, uh, our IMM teacher last week, said some false intimacy, some other intimacy that would meet the desperate need of our hearts to be loved and and to be accepted, what we want to do is try to heal ourselves in some way apart from God's will. You know, the old adage that he who has himself for a doctor has a fool for a patient. And uh, that's uh, very often the case. We, we don't want to turn to the one the Old Testament refers to as Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. We want to heal ourselves. And so we, we, we look for love in all the wrong places. And the attitude of, of much of the world today is, well, they, this person just needs to be affirmed. He or she needs to be, needs to be cared for. Now, Paul understood. He knows that God understands our woundedness. And uh, he understood the woundedness of, of, of this man. But he also understood that sin will kill you. You see, that's the problem with, with sin. Though it always promises so much, in the end, it leaves us... It leaves us jaded and, and empty and unsatisfied and, and depressed. Fantasized uh, sin, as I've said before, always looks so good. Real sin is awful. It takes our life away. And Paul knew that, you see. And his concern was to, was to salvage this man. He, he wanted the church to go on a rescue operation. A couple of years ago, I was fishing Little Payette Lake, and uh, I was pumping up my float tube. I have one of those uh, pumps that plug into the 
cigarette lighter, and I didn't know it, but my battery was bad, and I ran my battery down before my float tube got pumped up, and so <laughs> I, uh, there wasn't anybody around. They were all out on the lake, and so I thought, well, I'll wait until somebody comes off the lake, and then I'll get my car started. I had some jumper cables, and so I just pulled the tailgate down on my Jeep and pulled my waders off, and I was sitting there on the tailgate reading and waiting for somebody to, to come off of the lake, and I heard all this thrashing around and yelling and screaming, and and I looked, and about as far as from here to the back of the auditorium, there was a fellow in a float tube who had been playing a fish, and he reached around behind him and went over backwards. Those of you know what you know what that's like if you've ever been in a float tube. You cannot get upright. It's just absolutely impossible. In the first place, you just don't lean over backwards. And then if you do, you know you're in big trouble. And uh, so I, uh, uh, he was yelling and screaming for help, and his friend was in a float tube, about a hundred yards away from him, he started paddling toward him. So I did what you would do. I just went thrashing out through the water, and it wasn't very deep. It's only about waist deep, even though that lake's fairly shallow. And, and I got out there to him and grabbed him by the front of his fishing vest and jerked him upright. And he said, "Whew, thank you." He said, "I, th- I think I was a goner." Now uh, imagine, if you will, uh, my sitting on the tailgate, and this man is going under for the third time thinking, uh, my, my, his father did not teach him how to uh, fish. (laughs) Here's a young man who desperately wanted to go fishing, and his father never fished with him, and so he never really learned to properly use a float tube, and uh, uh, I'm so sorry for him. He needs to be affirmed in some way. No, you see, this man was going under, believe me. His waders were full of water, and he was in big trouble. Now, you see, this is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. When people are engaged in sin, they begin to die. And if we really care about them, we will not let them perish any more than we would let them uh, remain in a burning house if we have the power to rescue them. We will rescue them. See, the world is saying today, live and let live. But there's no life in that creed. If we let people go, they die. And uh, you know, the, the world is, is greatly distressed about the uh, inclination of the church to, to act when people are sinning because they, they, they feel we're interfering with people's lives. We need to leave them alone. But if we really love people, we won't. We'll, we'll go after them. See? And that's what Paul is advocating in this, uh, in this text so the question is, what is the corrective? What do we do when we, we see someone, as Paul puts it in Galatians 6, caught in a trespass, victimized by the evil one? What, what do we do? Well, let me, uh, uh, let me ask you to turn to another passage, Matthew 18, because uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 presupposes uh, a prior rescue effort that's described for us in... Uh, in Matthew 18, these are Jesus' words. And I want you particularly to notice the context of Matthew 18 because it's in that uh, chapter that has to do with the lost sheep. There are 99 that the shepherd leaves and he goes after one little lost sheep because, as Jesus put it, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then in verse 14 of chapter 18, Jesus says it's not... The will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So when one of the sheep gets lost and uh, 
that we, we recognize the, the Father's heart, his concern, his desire that they not, uh, they not perish, we, we go after them. God goes after lost sheep. We should as well. And the text is connected. Verse 15 begins with an and. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him. The word reproof means to show him his sin and summon him to repentance. Reprove him in private, and if he listens to you, singular, you've won your brother. What do you do if you see your brother sinning? He sins against you, or he simply sins. There's a textual problem here. As you may note from the side margin, probably the NASB is right. If you see your brother caught in a trespass, some clearly uh, something that's clearly sinful, something proscribed or prohibited by, by Scripture, then you have a private conference first. You don't talk about it to anyone else. You don't share it with anyone. That would be gossip. You don't ask the church to pray for them. That's simply a, a, a pious form of gossip. You go directly to that person and you appeal to them for repentance. As Ambrose said, a true friend will stab you in the front. You go directly to them, you see, and appeal. You know, your approach is, look, I... I I'm just as prone to sin as you are. I struggle with sin too. And I, here's an area of your life that really concerns me. I, I see that you're acting in a deceitful way here. And it really bothers me because I know that sin can capture you and destroy you. And, and I would just like to help you turn away from that sin and set your, your life right, whatever, whatever it takes. So moving in alongside to help. And then Jesus says, and by the way, let's keep in mind who it is that's speaking here. This is our Lord. And we're not at liberty to question his teaching. You see, whatever the world is telling us, we have to do what our Lord is telling us to do. Secondly, he says, if he doesn't, uh, he says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, Every fact may be confirmed. That's a quotation you'll recognize from the Old Testament. You take two or three with you. Private uh, appeal, then a private conference with two or three. Now, the point of taking two or three is not to gang up on the person. It's simply to affirm that, that there are others that have seen the same thing, and they are concerned as well. There's, there's something very powerful about the witness of two or three. I mean, if we don't listen to two or three when they come, it shows that our hearts must be getting very hard. It's an old Yiddish proverb that says, if, if one person calls you an ass, pay him no mind. If two people call you an ass, go buy a saddle. And uh, if, uh, if two or three are telling us that there's a problem in our life, then we, we better listen to them. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that is the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. The, that's the assembly, the body of, of course, there was no church at this time. He's thinking of the people of God as, as they gather. Tell it to the church. There needs to be some announcement made to the church. Now, that's it's hard for some people to understand. And we have a lot of people that have left this church because they don't understand that. When we tell it to the church, what we're telling the church to do is to go after that person. We're mounting a, a search and rescue operation. Go after them. Call them. Take them out to lunch. Talk to them. Write them letters. Do everything possible to bring them back because sin will kill them, see? And uh, then Paul says, if, or Jesus says, if you will not listen to the church, 
and let him be to you as a, as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And that, I think, takes us into 1 Corinthians 5. The fourth step that uh, Jesus delineates here is the step which Paul elaborates in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 5. Now let's turn back to, uh, to that passage. Now there are five or six things I'd like to say about this uh, text. The first and perhaps most important thing is that it entails, it entails a right attitude. You notice what Paul says? You, you, you've been proud. You've been arrogant. You're thinking of yourselves more highly than you ought to think because you're so tolerant of this individual. You ought to mourn. He says, you ought to mourn. It ought to break your heart. You ought to weep over that person. We, we, don't, we don't go in a spirit of self-righteousness or the, a feeling that, that we, have, uh, uh, we, have, uh, we have attained. We, we go in a spirit of brokenness. As Paul puts it in Galatians 6, when you see your brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, that is you who are dependent upon the Spirit of Christ, go in a spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, lest you too be, be tempted. And our spirit in going is one of of humility and and, uh, pr- and awareness of our own proclivity to, to to fall into sin, we go saying, "Look, next time around, it 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 could be me." You see that you're appealing to. Uh, whenever we hear that someone has fallen, our attitude not ought not to be one of glee. You know, unfortunately, sometimes when you hear of certain outst- uh, outstanding Christian leaders, uh, there is a, 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 a sort of a response of pride. You know, I'm not like that. But it ought, it ought to break our hearts. The response ought to be, God, help us. I could be next. And uh, it's so, how we do what we do is so important. You see, that spirit of brokenness and gentleness and compassion and kindness. No self-righteousness, you see. Right, a right attitude, a right spirit. The second thing I would say, it has to be done on the right basis. We don't appeal to people who simply annoy us. We don't appeal to people that have a different political persuasion than we have. No, we're talking about sin. Clearly defined sin. Issues that are, that are prohibited in, in Scripture. And I'm talking about tradition or this thing that I've referred to so often as folk Christianity. This, this body of, of belief that Christians seem to have. It's nowhere found in Scripture. No, it, it has to be sin. Transgression. Evil, wickedness, what God himself has said is, uh, uh, is sin. The, uh, it's to be done, as Paul puts it, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the rule of thumb that we use. It's what Jesus teaches us. It's what he has said is wrong. Uh, in verse 11, Paul says, uh, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous. Uh, we, unfortunately, we're, we're inclined to identify sexual sins much more quickly. Immorality, the word that Paul uses here is the word fornication, which is the big word for all sorts of, of immorality, sexual immorality. But Paul says also this, if we see someone who's greedy or covetous or materialistic, you see, we should move in their direction. Or an idolater, someone who worships the almighty dollar. Or a reviler. That word actually means an abuser. If someone is physically abusive or someone is verbally abusive, that's sinful. And, uh, uh, there ne- and this corrective needs to be uh, applied. 
By the way, if you're a wife who's being abused, your first responsibility is to go to that brother who is your spouse and confront him with his sin. If he will not hear you, then take two or three others and confront. And the whole process needs to be followed through because verbal abuse is sinful. And unfortunately, you know, we, we don't want the world to know that we're having problems in our marriage. We like to, Ray used to talk about, uh, Ray Stebney used to talk about the conspiracy of silence that we all maintain, just kind of hiding behind a facade of, of performance. But if your marriage is falling apart because your spouse is abusive, you need to, you need to apply this, this corrective, you see, not hide behind that, that veil of, of respectability. Um, if anyone is a, is a drunkard, an alcoholic, or a swindler, these are the kind of sins which are proscribed in, in Scripture. I said, well, how can drunkenness be, uh, uh, be a sin? The world is telling us today that it's a sickness. It's an addictive behavior. People can't help it when they're alcoholics. Well, I know I may, uh, may represent a, an entirely different point of view to you, one which you haven't thought all the way through. But in my, my opinion, addictions are the result of decisions that we have made. Most of us, as I said, have been horribly wounded. And so we have adopted uh, ungodly ways of dealing with our, with our woundedness and alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography or any number of other behaviors or the choices that we make. And uh, having made those choices, we discover that sin begins to control us. And after a while, we are out of control. We are addicted. Sin begets sin. And the only way out, as, as the word tells us so clearly, is through repentance. We may struggle with the addiction for, for a while, maybe even until we go to be with the Lord or he, he comes for us. But the only way out, the only answer is repentance of sin, dealing with the sin that is, uh, that is at the bottom of our, uh, of our behaviors. And so uh, what Paul is saying is that when we see someone trapped and caught in any of these behaviors, then love demands that we move towards them. We cannot just uh, gloss over their, their activities. Right spirit, right basis, and then a right action. Now, remember, this is the fourth step. See, uh, uh, Paul is not saying one, two, three, four, slam dunk them. This is not what he's talking about. He's saying you go to the person uh, as an individual and you appeal. And you may appeal many times. This uh, This may take place over a period of several weeks. And then you take two or three and they they go to that individual and appeal. And uh, then perhaps after weeks or months, then an announcement is made to the church. And they go after this individual. And, and that may take a period of time. But finally, you see, if the person will not respond, it indicates an extremely hard heart. They may not even be a believer. And uh, then the, the fourth step is, is the most severe mercy, as, as C.S. Lewis would say. Paul says, you're not to associate with them. That's, that's the tough one. And that's where even here on our staff and within our elders, we have some differences of opinion. I'll tell you what I understand this text to mean, but you need to work this out uh, on your own. The word that uh, twice in this text, Paul says, don't, don't associate with them. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter. That's the, the letter that apparently was lost that came between first and uh, 
that came before 1 Corinthians. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then in verse 11, he says, uh, actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother. He should be immoral. Now, that particular word that's translated associate occurs three times in, in the New Testament, twice here. The other occurrence is in 2 Thessalonians. And I'd like to have you look at that, at that text where he argues similarly. Uh, it's an interesting passage because here's a, here's a man who won't work. And he's being disciplined by the, by the church. He's freeloading off the community. And uh, Paul says in verse 11, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. I'm, in, I'm reading 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, 11. Some among you are, are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work, but acting like busybodies. Uh, the word simply means to waste time. They just run around doing nothing. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a, in a, in a quiet uh, fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, don't get weary of of doing good. I, I, you know, in context, I think what Paul is saying is some of you are getting fed up with these gold bricks, but don't, you know, or some of you are wondering why we should work when when this when others are not. And Paul is saying it's a very noble. The word for good here is the word for nobility. It's a very noble thing you're doing to work. Work is a noble enterprise. Don't ever forget that. And if anyone does not obey our instruction, verse 14 in this letter, take special notice of that man. And do not associate with him. There's our word that's found in 2 Corinthians 5. Do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. But listen to this. And yet do not regard him as an enemy. But keep admonishing him as a brother. Now, let me go back to 1 Corinthians 5 again and point out that there are two domains in this world. There's the domain of Satan, which we call the world. It's just a community of flesh-governed individuals who really aren't, they're not submissive to God. That's the world. And then there's the domain of God, the kingdom of God, which is comprised of those who are submissive to God. Those are the only two uh, domains, the only two kingdoms in reality. And uh, over here in the kingdom of God, within what we call the church today, there's an enormous amount of protection. I don't think we appreciate what it means to have have other brothers and sisters who love us and who care for us and who support us and who pray for us and who minister to us. And over here is, the, is Satan's domain where, where you don't have that support structure. And what Paul is saying is that that person needs to be delivered over into this other domain. In other words, uh, they're no longer supported and encouraged and taught and helped by the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that you're rude to them. If you happen to see, see, Paul says in Second Thessalonians, don't treat them like an enemy. Don't treat them like an enemy. See? If you see them, talk to them. You know, if, if you happen to run into them in a restaurant, go over and chat with them. But don't treat them as you would treat other Christians. That's what he's saying. You just remove those, uh, all those protective, uh, you remove that protective environment. And their lives begin to fall apart. Now that leads me into the, the fourth statement, right spirit, right basis, right action, right purpose. You notice how Paul puts it? Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction or ruin is the word, the ruin 
of his flesh. By flesh, Paul means body and soul. It's what we are in our essential humanity. See, what sin begins to cause us to disintegrate emotionally. Uh, we lose control. Our, our wills are captured. Our bodies begin to fall apart. All sorts. You know, it's a terrible thing to be bad because your life begins to unravel. And that's what Paul is describing here is the ruin of, of the flesh. But that's not the purpose of it all. The purpose is that the spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Prodigal son is a good illustration of what Paul is talking about. Prodigal son went into a far country, spent his resources, ended up eating what the pigs would not eat. And when he finally came to the end of himself, he remembered what he had in the father's house. And so the purpose of letting people go is to let them have their way. And they enter into Satan's dominion and they experience body, soul, and spirit, the uh, effects of sin. And they are finally reduced to dust and ashes and they say, I want to come back. And then we welcome them back with open arms. Of course, the father is there before us. He's the waiting father, as you have from the prodigal, in the story of the prodigal son. He's standing there ready to to embrace them. Doesn't make any difference how many steps they've taken away. It just takes one step to come back. But it has to start with repentance. So Paul's point is that the effects of sin in our lives will reduce us to the end of ourselves so that we will repent and we will come home. The second uh, uh, purpose is the purification of the church. He says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are in, in reality. Uh, in fact, unleavened for Christ, our Passover has been, has been sacrificed. The imagery uh, to which Paul refers here is, is the imagery of the Passover. You know, even today, Jews will go through their house with a candle cleaning out any speck of leaven done symbolically now. It's done literally back in those days when they actually introduced yeast into their uh, into the dough in their kitchens, and the yeast would permeate the entire uh, uh, the mass. And uh, that's what Paul is saying about sin, that once you, once, once you let leaven grow, it just insidiously begins to permeate the whole church. If you don't, move in and do something about sin, not only do you destroy the sinner, but you begin to destroy the church. So he says, clean out, clean out the leaven. You're not saying just throw the guy out. That's not the point, you see. But you have to deal with that principle of sin that's at work within the church. I want to tell you something. I want a church where people will come after me if I'm in trouble. If you won't come after me when I'm sliding into sin, then I'm going to go to another church where they will. Because I know how insidious and subtle sin is. Any one of us that thinks that we're, we're untemptable is a fool. We are. Any of us can fall into any sin. And if we think we can't, we are very, very foolish. I want a church that will look after me. Because, you know, we all have our loopholes and fudge factors, and, and we all have our ways of justifying sin. And I want somebody that will come get me if I, if I am deceived. If you'll forgive another trout fishing uh, illustration here. I, I've, I've been reading uh, A River Runs Through It, you know, and I can't get it off my mind. 
uh, those of you that are fly fishermen know how this works. You know, you, uh, you find a, a pool where fish are working, and uh, you, there's a considerable amount of stealth involved. You know, you, you, you slip up on that pool and, you know, present the right uh, pattern and you make the right presentation, you catch a fish. Now, what I do is that after I, I have uh, caught, you know, and what happens when you catch a fish is the fish, you know, he thrashes around, runs up and down the pool, scares all the other fish, and all the fish scatter. What I do is I put my fly rod down, and I usually carry a book with me, and I lean up against a tree for about 10 or 15 minutes, and I read, or I uh, take a nap or whatever, and uh, then go, go back to the same hole and, and present the same uh, pattern, and, and uh, generally you'll catch another fish because they're usually there in pods, as you know. Okay. I was talking to a friend this last week, and and and. And we discovered that that is, that's very true to life. You see, what happens is that Satan operates by stealth. He also operates on the basis of our stupidity. And here's the way it works. He, you know, he, he has his own ways of, of fooling us. And uh, he fools one of our friends. And they get caught up in some sin. And we say, ooh, boy, have I got to be careful. And uh, so for a month or so, we're careful, but then, you see, we forget. We forget, and we'll go for the same pattern, exactly. And that's why we need help. I want a church where people will come after me. And I'm not kidding. If you won't, I'm going to another church. Right spirit, right basis, right action, right purpose, right people. Very important. That, uh, that we understand who we're, we're to go after. You notice how Paul puts it. Um, I, verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be a, an immoral uh, person. This is Paul's postscript. He's saying, I'm talking about Christians here, followers of Christ, not those that are not followers of Christ. It's God's business to judge them. It's not my business. We should never withdraw from non-Christians because they're sinful. Never. Jesus was the friend of sinners. And I have to ask myself, do I have any friends that are lesbians? Do I have any friends out there in the world that, that worship the almighty dollar? Do I have any friends out there that cheat on their spouses? Do I have any friends that, that drink too much? I ought to, you see. I ought to be befriending those that are out there in the world that, that are struggling with, with their sin. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was the counterpart today of a drug dealer. And Jesus spotted him in his tree up there. And he says, come on down, I want to have, I want to have dinner with you tonight. Wanted to be Zacchaeus' friend. Earned him a very bad reputation, but uh, he loved people too much to care. So that the thing to remember is that that we go after those that are within the body of Christ. Our only message to the non-Christian world. And by the way, this is a good introduction to the series, three-week series we're going to begin next week on sharing our faith. Our only message to the to the outside world, to the unbelieving world, is the message of God's grace and His love, the message of the cross. We're not here to rebuke them for their sin, but when our friends fall into sin, 
when our Christian friends, those that, that are followers of Christ, then we it's incumbent upon us that we that we do so. Right attitude, right basis, right action, right purpose, right people, right result. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's my experience that churches that don't carry out uh, this uh, redemptive uh, plan are grim, cold, uncomfortable places filled with malice and, and wickedness. But, but those that do are places of celebration. That's where there's real joy and, and spontaneity. Remember what Jesus said? Well, actually, I didn't read this, this passage. Uh, I will in a moment. But in John 13, Jesus said, uh, if you know these things and you do them, you're, you're happy. You're happy. And that was said with reference to the discipline process. So right spirit ought to break our hearts when we go after someone. Right basis, we go after them if they are living in sin. That is, they are clearly disobedient to Scripture. Right action, they are to be placed into Satan's domain for the destruction of the flesh so the spirit can be saved. Right purpose, so the spirit can be saved. Right people, not non-Christians but followers of Christ. And finally, the right result is celebration. Let me remind you of something Jesus did once, and with this I'm, I'm through. Just before the cross, Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room. Momentous occasion. He, he had to deliver his last words to the apostles. Howie Hendricks used to say, last words are always lasting words. So he, he rises from dinner. John says, he knew all power, all authority had been given to him, that he'd come from the Father and that he was going to the Father and you would expect him to deliver the uh, upper room discourse or something like that, the sermon in the upper room. But you remember what he did? He took off his robe and just dressed in the undergarment of a slave, he got down on his hands and knees and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. That's a slave's job, but there weren't any slaves in the apostolic band. And everybody else volunteered everybody else. They didn't want to do the job. Somebody had to wash feet because they'd been out walking through the world and their feet were dirty. And, uh, you know, you, in those days you, you reclined and people's feet were in proximity with your face and so they, they washed your, you had to wash your feet, so. Nobody did the job except our Lord. He stripped himself down as a servant, and he got a bowl of water and a towel, and he began to crawl around on his hands and knees. He probably started with Judas, who was immediately to his left. He worked his way all the way, all the way around the apostolic group till he came to Peter. Peter was incensed. He said, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. Peter said, wash me all over. Jesus said, you don't need to be washed all over. I just want to wash your feet. And then he completes the task. Puts the bowl away, hangs up the towel, puts on his robe, says, do you know what I've done to you? And they say, sure, you washed our feet. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. This was a symbol of what you're to do for one another. You don't need to be washed all over. You've been washed by the water of regeneration, by the word. You've been declared righteous on the basis of the cross. You don't need to be washed all over. But as you walk through the world, you get your feet dirty. 
and you need to get down on your hands and knees and wash one another's feet. And then Jesus said, I have done it to you. You must do it to one another. It's not an option. It's a command. But Jesus said, if you do it, you're happy. That's a tough subject, I know. A lot of questions. I'll be up here at the front. There'll be others in the back who are available to talk to you if you'd like to discuss this this further. Let's uh, pray. Would that we had Isaiah's outlook, Lord, who, when he saw you high and lifted up, fell on his face and cried out, I am undone, I'm an unclean man. When we see your holiness, Lord, we are put in our place. We realize that we are a struggling, sinful people. How much we need one another to objectify our sin, to show us what we're really like, and to help us deal with the awfulness in our lives. And how terrible it is when we will not love enough to do this for each other. We will not expect to be understood, Lord, as we carry out this task, but we would ask that you would give us the courage, knowing that we do so, as Paul puts it, in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, with his authority and in his word, with his word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.